Uh, what's going on, everybody? My name is Arjun Gupta. I play Penny on Sci-Fi's and the Magicians. And welcome to the Coffee Clatch Podcast. Get ready for a wild ride. The Coffee Clatch Podcast. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew, the Magicians episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we are reviewing episode three, The Losses of Magic. Written by Sierra Gamble and John McNamara. Directed by James Conway. IMDb gave this an 8.3. The synopsis is Alice visits her parents. Katie and Julia explore new methods to heal Penny. It should also be Elliot finds the door. And Revenge of the Lamprey. And Margot permanently winks. Son of a twat. So overall, I like this episode. I definitely like it more than the last one. There were things that I was asking for, which it's funny, we talked about this last season. It seems like whenever I say, oh, I really wish we'd see more of this, The Magicians delivers the very next episode, which is amazing. Well, we did ask Arjun last year if they film it after our podcast, because it felt like every time they did do that. I know, they're using their magic. It's incredible. (laughs) One of the things I'm talking about is kind of upping the ante with the Fillory adventure, getting to see the Muntjac. And of course, we got all of that and more. I really appreciated the Margot Tick humor that was happening this time. It was actually a very dark episode with some heavy themes, especially surrounding Alice, which I enjoyed. Absolutely. With every good TV show, they're not afraid to change it up a bit. They're not afraid to go, you know what? Yes, we are more lighthearted, pop cultural winking, magical TV show. We can't go dark. We can't go too dark. No, they're able to say when they need to go dark and they're able to embrace that. Well, this show needs to, if you're familiar with the books, that was a central theme talking about how in the magician's world, magic isn't like your classic stories. Lev Grossman was doing a lot of this, taking from things like the Chronicles of Narnia, Lord of the Rings, those types of universes and saying, it's not all that. It's not perfect. It's not even like the Fillory and Further books. This is what it would look like if we really had to deal with it. And some of that gets depressing for our characters. It doesn't always work out right. If you want to stay true to the essence of what he created, I think you need to go with that. And they have. They've done a very good job with that on the TV show. I agree with you with all the upsides. And additionally, I loved the flow of this episode. They seemed to tell the story and piece it together very well. And they generated a lot more questions for me, which we will definitely dive into later. And a lot more theories that could come up based on the fairies. What do they really want? Which is one of our questions. But now we have kind of a hint. Or Elliot. Where did he go? All the way down to Penny. Did we really lose Penny? Now, we know that he is currently like a projected version, but his body is dead. So what does that mean for him in the future? Yeah, well, and we think his body is dead, right? That's what they made it look like. They left this very open-ended. I was just saying last time that it seems hard to really up the stakes and the scare factor in a world where you have magic that could potentially save you. Oh, this person's dead, but no, we went to the underworld to bring them back. We can reunite them with their shade. There always seems to be kind of a loophole. But again, The Magicians does a good job with making that danger real for our characters. For Penny, if he did in fact lose his physical body, even if he has this spirit, that's still a major thing. We saw Penny's physical body die, if that's true. If not, it brings up a lot of interesting questions. How do we get his spirit or his soul back into his body? If he's just a spirit, we know his soul is bound to the library for the rest of his life. So does he just have to live there? And also, this is probably the third or fourth time we've seen him sick, right? He's been sick a lot. And 
this time it actually took him. It got the best of him. And I think they needed to go that route because they kept ending up with him in bed sick. So they must have been like, oh, well, I think we got to kill him this time. <laughs> Let's push it. I think we're going to get a lot more answers on that next episode. We know episode four is titled Be the Penny. And we'll get into thoughts about that later on in our spoiler section. I agree with you about the overall themes. There is also one going on here about females in roles of power, which does come from Lev Grossman's books. And I'm talking mainly about Alice and Julia, but we will get into that in our plot. There were a couple minor downsides for me. We still did have some quick scene jumping. So, of course, when we go through the synopsis, we're going to break it up into sections. What happened at Alice's house? What happened with Julia, Katie, and Penny? And what happened in Fillory? I also felt there were some odd plot points and development in the family dynamics happening with Alice. And I know that her family is just a bit strange, so that goes a long way. But it didn't always feel like it was gelling quite right for me. Well, they weren't gelling quite right. No, not at all. <laughs> so, But we're going to get into all that and more. Let's start out with our new faces and places. For faces, we had Carol. A woman who we assume is a relative or close family friend. friend. I was racking my brain because the way they approached it made me feel like we should know who Carol is. I guess it's just the fact that Alice should know who Carol is. I agree, but it was odd. If it didn't matter, why not just say Aunt Carol or Cousin Carol? Keeping it a secret made it felt like it was going to be important, but then she just sort of disappeared off scene. So I don't really know. It felt like a one-off. Yeah, definitely. I don't know about keeping it a secret. They just said it's Carol. It's probably because it's not an aunt. You know, she wouldn't be like, it's my best friend, Carol, you know? Oh, no, but for the viewer's sake to not describe somebody and bring it in like you should know her. Well, they used it as an opportunity to, again, pile on the fact that things are different without magic. Mm -hmm. The house was not the same. The family is 30 years behind in back taxes because they no longer have that charm, which, by the way, I really wish we had magic. Like, constantly, like, oh, my God, we can buy any house and just not have to pay because we have magic. And, oh, my God, I can eat whatever I want and still have the six-pack that I had a couple years ago. Yeah, and this family, especially, right, outside of institutions like, say, break bills, I believe it's the only family we've seen close up that is entirely magical. Mom, dad, daughter, son... They live their lives. This is how it revolves. They've never had to worry about any of that. Stephanie says she doesn't know how to work a real job. They don't have a place in this world now. So we had spoke last episode about people that are more dependent upon the magic being hit harder. And this is another facet of that. We also met Hoop, one of the pirates who quarter the Muntjac, and the pirate king, the leader of that pirate group. And finally, Astaroth with an E... Not the Astaroth with an A, who's demon of the seventh circle, great duke of the inferno, but his cousin. I really enjoyed that character. He was funny. He, he was, was kind of like a chill demon. He was great. And Astaroth was played by Julian Richings, which a lot of people might know him from Supernatural, Orphan Black, Hannibal, and The Expanse. So he's a good actor. He's renowned. And obviously, even though it's a short stint on the show, probably, we probably won't see him again. He makes a lasting impression for sure. And as we've talked about before, they're definitely trying to make points about these greater beings or people in power. The ancient gods are completely removed. We don't see much of them at all. They don't interact with us. The minor gods are, pardon my French, but most of the times dicks who just mm. want to mess with the humans. They don't 
care about us in any way. And yet now you have this demon who's just kind of cool and helpful. So I think the more pieces we get of this greater puzzle, the more we learn about this world. And that's really interesting. For creatures, if you want to call it that, we have Sika, the pirate ship, which is also a deer class vessel like the Munchak, a magical sentient creature with the same biological urges, Hmm. or so we're told. And finally, for spells and magic, we have the demon summoning ritual, magic performed by Julia and Katie to help call this demon to try to remove the poison from Penny. And apparently Katie got this from a stranger, the ritual, because the books are gone, right? So they couldn't look up the spell, or I guess they couldn't even go to break bills because the magic between two worlds is turned off too, right? Yeah, I'm not sure. I think they can get to break bills still because we saw the end of last season due to the loss of magic break bills doesn't really have any wards up they just put this fence to oh, guard them right. okay but they're kind of a lost cause right now and they're being hounded by this board yeah. that we met recently i don't think they would be of much help yeah it's another storyline that they have yet to go back to there's so much going on this season yeah i wish they had 20 episodes but that reminds me i was discussing the episode with a friend of mine And he brought up a lot of good points, which I'll bring up throughout this episode. But one of which was that he thought the original construction worker, last episode that was taken over by the Lamprey, is the same vampire who spoke to Alice. And I looked quickly, and they kind of look similar. I don't know. I can't tell. Oh, you're talking about the one that met her in the alley? Yeah. To tell her about the alarm system? Yeah. I'm not sure about that. So I'm very curious. I tried to do some Googling, but... That's a weird question to ask. (laughs) Yeah, it could be. All right, so let's jump into our plot, starting out with the Alice scenes. She snags another cat and goes to her parents' house. We find out Quentin called her mom back when all of this happened to tell her she was alive, but Alice never actually went to see her parents. This is the first time. She barely recognizes this woman, Carol, whoever she is. I guess she used a lot of illusion work, according to Stephanie. So I can kind of understand Alice not coming back. I mean... She's been really busy since losing her Niffin power and trying to run away from a lamprey, trying to kill her. Like, it it makes sense why she wouldn't go back home. Because also, let's be honest, her mother is more trouble than anything. This is not a great situation, but she left off with her parents thinking she was dead. I mean, can you imagine not even calling them, sending a notice? By the way, I am alive. It's okay. And mostly with her father, who she seems to have a really good relationship with. I mean, they must have been really worried about her. But as you said, Stephanie is constantly consumed with her own problems. That's going to be something that runs through these scenes. Olivia Taylor Dudley, she wrote on Twitter asking if anyone noticed that her mom in the show, played by Judith Hogue, is actually the original April O'Neil. Oh, I saw that. Ninja Turtles, yeah. Isn't that cool? And now I could not not see it when I was looking at her. That's funny. I never knew that. Well, she's quite a character, and... We know her and Alice have never had a great relationship. That's coming through now where Alice is trying to tell her there's these very serious problems going on. She wants to help them keep them safe. Stephanie doesn't believe it. She doesn't care. This is a problem she doesn't want to have to deal with. Well, yeah, it looks like they're just numbing themselves out, getting drunk, just going through the day and in denial. I mean, she even says kind of matter of factly, Magic's coming back pretty soon. So they're kind of just numbing out until it passes, like a bad storm. Yeah. My question here is, because they're a completely magical family, they do know about things that are out there, at least to some extent, probably not what Alice has seen. 
But if your child comes and says, this crazy monster is after us, I don't think my reaction would be to just flat out not believe her. It's, it's odd, for sure. But if you remember, Stephanie never really listened to her daughter. No. And she always just hid behind her parties and her, the magic that she knows. I read from an outsider's point of view that they kind of established themselves and they're just utilizing magic to stay comfortable and they're kind of in their own bubble. So they don't really know what's going on. It's kind of like the electricity's off. It's, it'll come back. They'll fix it eventually. You know, we don't really know what's going on out there. We just know that someone's going to fix that electricity. Yeah, well, in here, she just doesn't want to be bothered. This is another one of Alice's problems. Yeah. I don't have time for it. Because when the cat gets close to Carol, it runs. This freaks Alice out. She assumes the lamprey's now inside of her. But the mom isn't hearing that either. No. So desperate to get real help, Alice confides in her father about the lamprey. At which point, Quentin also joins the group, and they all decide to electrocute Carol to exercise the lamprey out of her. But when the shock doesn't work, Carol leaves, and I don't blame her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At that point, Daniel sees Quentin's neck move and realizes it must be in him. And this is when we start, this is kind of one of those things with the plot here that was a little weird. There's a lot of, the lamprey's in him, the lamprey's in her, the neck moved, where did it go? But... It wasn't creating that fear I think I was supposed to be feeling, maybe well, because we weren't visually seeing anything yet. Well, I kept asking myself, why did she go to her parents' house if she knows she's being hunted? Like, she brought the trouble to her parents. Mm. That was my main question. You know, now wouldn't be the time to visit them, especially considering knowing that she's not going to be much help anyways. And the- how and why did Quentin show up, which we learned later. There's a reason for that, and they had to keep that a mystery, but the whole introduction was like, oh. Quentin's here. Okay. (laughs) Well, I mean, we knew he was a lamprey from the end of last episode. Yeah, we did. Oh, I see what you're saying. Well, I didn't mind the jumping around not knowing who it was because we were living in Alice's confusion. She didn't know who was a lamprey. And in the end, we didn't know till the last minute who was the lamprey. Sure. But were you scared by that? It felt a little bizarre. They're like wrapping themselves up. It was almost uh, silly. Yeah. They always go with a little bit of a comical bend (laughs) for sure. But no, I wasn't necessarily scared because I knew that he didn't want to kill her. Hmm. See, I thought that was a bluff. I thought the whole time that considering what we know, and we didn't know a lot, but that she did some horrible things to his family, that he had a very sinister plan. True. Um, That part was a little frightening. I guess, again, maybe the visuals of not being able to see him, just seeing the neck move and them talking about him coming, it wasn't quite real for me yet. And so it felt like a lot of going from this room to that room and a little (laughs) clue-like who's got the lamprey now. Well, one thing with Alice when she's on screen, I keep thinking about the fact that Olivia has a rough task in acting out this character. Mm. And we talked about it last episode, the beginning of The Magician, season one, she played this quirky, uh, nerd, standoffish, kind of dorky person. Yeah, withdrawn, but still self-confident. She had a, a distinctive poise. Now she has to play someone who's so wounded inside that she doesn't even know how wounded she is or affected by being a Niffin, which we'll get into deeper uh, later on in this episode. But there's obviously a lot going on there, and that's got to be very difficult to act out. I agree with you because wounded in the sense that it's not even emotional. She has these lack of emotions that she should. It's almost like portraying sociopathic qualities, which, yes, very hard to demonstrate on screen, 
I actually think she's doing a great job of handling that. It's maybe the other characters' reactions to her and the way that that dynamic is meshing or not. And I don't mean to put this solely on Quentin, but, you know, part of this is Quentin's journey. His character is constantly, completely consumed with his own wounds and his own problems, and he just can't get outside of his head enough to help anyone else. I don't really agree with you that. Yes, he's in his head a lot, but all he's trying to do is help everyone else. I think it's more the fact that he's in denial about her. He still loves her, and he doesn't know how to act, and he doesn't know how to fix it. You think he wants to fix it for her, though? I got the feeling by the end of their conversation, he can't escape this hurt. And and I think she's right that part of him just wants her to be the old Alice. And he misses that person. He loves that person. And he's not fully getting it when she's saying, that Alice isn't here anymore. It's one thing, I think it's harder to fix it when it's something that's emotional, like PTSD type thing that's going on with her it's a lot easier to try to fix it if she's a niffin or something a demon or someone lost their shade Mm -hmm. that's what he's more apt to try to fix this is next to impossible to him i think that's very human-like because when someone's injured as humans we're more apt to try to help them but when someone's injured emotionally ptsd back from the war they've changed we tend to just lock on to the memory of them and try to push them to be that person by constantly trying to talk to them like they were still that person and kind of ignoring the signs. That's very human-like. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But a lot of that revolves around our own pain and our own inability to deal with what this person has become now or, or how things have changed. For sure, we have trouble saying, okay, let me step back and, and say, what does this person need? You know, not not how do I fix it for me or make them go back to that because that's impossible. Uh, but how do we move forward now? And I think Quentin has no idea how to do that. And he has, hasn't even been ready to take that step. And she's trying to push him to tell him, you have to deal with that. You have to acknowledge the fact that it's never going to be the same and kind of get out of your own pain and let's figure out what do we do now? Because I don't even know what to do now. She says, I don't know who I want to be. I don't know who I'm turning into. This is a very complex issue and we had talked about last episode there are signs she's not the same she is permanently changed from all these experiences and it gets a little frightening but we'll get there let's first go back to i think you get those first glimmers here in this comment that she makes where daniel's talking about calling the police to remove quentin and alice argues against that at first we think and her parents think this is because quentin's her boyfriend and she loves quentin She very calmly and rationally says, no, it's just that if we call a cop, he would have a gun. That would make things harder. Do we really want to involve that? And at first I said, is this a bluff? Is she just trying to put them off? But it actually looked like she meant it. Like that emotion that should have been there wasn't. She was just thinking, no, that's going to make it harder for our plan if Quentin dies. Yeah, but one emotion she does have is anger. She She still has that. Yes. Down pat. But for sure, if you just kill the body with a gun... It'll just go to another body. And that's all she was thinking about. It wasn't like this extreme fear or sadness. Well, Quentin could die. And that's when I said, geez, how much of her humanity is left? How much has survived this? Well, and so Daniel suggests using the car battery because they're running out of juice on this uh, electrical prod that they're using, if you Hmm. want. Uh, She goes out to the garage, wrapped up. (laughs) It's just another question. Okay, so... Uh, They were wrapping themselves up to protect against the lamprey 
getting inside of them, correct? Mm-hmm. And so that was because the lamprey could enter through any orifice, including the skin. That's right. But, <laughs> but her face and her neck. Their eyes, yeah. their ears, their mouth, their nose. Yeah, that's why I think it was more of just a comical part of the show. Right. It's just visually funny. To look funny. goofy. Yeah. Uh, when she gets to the garage, she finds Quentin lying on the floor and is about to attack him. When he screams, the lamprey left. I thought this was a good piece of info that he was giving, describing how when the lamprey's inside, you can feel it in there. You know that it's controlling you, and you can kind of process what's going on, but you can't do anything about it. And that's terrifying. And one of the things that Quentin sensed when it was in him was that the lamprey was angry but didn't actually want to kill Alice. And meanwhile, back inside, Stephanie is being difficult. As usual, she wants to leave the safe room that they've so carefully constructed because she needs to use the bathroom and doesn't want to do it in front of anybody. My God, she's next to annoying she's right like now. A it's like a child. Jeez, woman, you don't understand what's going on. I don't get it. She doesn't. It's like she doesn't care or she doesn't get it. They did all of this to try to keep her safe. If she leaves, they could die. What is the matter with her? I don't know. Very selfish. And in an attempt to stop her, Alice finally snaps and she admits she murdered the Lamprey's entire family. I didn't step on its toes. I murdered its entire family. I did experiments on them to figure out what kind of magic they had. That's what I did as a Niffin. Jesus, Alice. Well, you know, we've all dealt with our share of monsters. You don't get it. I did that kind of thing over and over again, okay? The lamprey is not the only creature that wants me dead. It's just the one who got my number. So I want to be absolutely clear on who the real monster is here. A little bit of foreshadowing, people? Yeah. Well, that leaves a lot of opportunity for more creatures to come and hunt. So as the episodes roll along and we're starting to establish what the main plot lines are, for sure it's about creatures and the fact that they still have magic and that they're very rebellious to humans, not just Alice. And I think they'll play that out and show it visually to us through Alice. And I want to bring this up now just because I don't know when the best time to bring it up would be. There's a lot of things that the show, which is great because it's like clues, is leaving hanging out there and not reminding us constantly every episode. One, let's not forget that world that's being eaten up by some kind of black hole. Two, we got Dean Fogg dealing with that big issue with the board. There's something there. They're not going to just leave that hanging forever. That's be- going to become a problem. Three, we got the fairies, for sure, which we'll go into a little bit. So in trying to figure all this out... My friend Mello and I were talking. He was coming up with some ideas, and I thought it was very interesting. He was talking about how he was wondering if Ember and Umber actually are dead, or if this is part of their game. Because remember, they love to play games with the humans, right? You throw something in there, see how they react. And he was thinking, maybe they're still alive. If you look at the beautiful art that they did for this season, where they look like stone carvings, all the characters... You'll see the main one in front is Julia, which is crazy. And she's holding the key, levitating. And then you have the characters around them. Then up top is an older man who we don't know who it, who it is yet. But surrounding them is either Ember or Umber's horns. So there's still something prevalent about them. So his idea, and I, you know, we don't have many clues about this, but it's just something to think about. 
is that they're still alive, and it maybe isn't actually the old gods. It was Ember and Umber who turned off the magic to see how they react. Well, that's a good idea. I like the theory. I mean, I loved Ember and Umber as characters, so it would be cool if they were still around. To me, it felt bigger than that, because even Ember and Umber probably wouldn't want to mess with the magic, or would they even have the ability? Like, are they that strong to be able to do that? Because we know they were kind of linked to this world, in an inextricable way, but also, what did it mean to die as a god? If you look back at some hmm. of these ancient myths, they didn't die the way we think of it. They might not be around in the same manner, but maybe there is a part of Ember and Number somewhere. I don't know. But you're right. There's a lot of bigger backstories going on that I enjoy. We have sort of the mission of the season, the quest to accomplish, but then the bigger overarching stories, and that's what Grossman did really well in his books. And one of those larger themes is not just the plot lines, but the developments of the characters and how they change over time and what are their roles actually in this story? How much power does each one have? What do they do with that? And we're finally starting to get deeper into that, and I think it's going to get exciting. Absolutely. I, I love this season so far. It's very exciting right now. Coming back to Alice's house, after she admits she's the real monster, Stephanie finally leaves the room, and Q ventures out wrapped up to find her. She breaks down. This is where she confides that information we said about the taxes losing their home. What are they going to do? And while the two of them are talking, Alice and Daniel are in the other room, reading through books, looking for answers. Alice admits that as a Niffin, there is nothing she wouldn't have done for knowledge. She then finds a description of the life cycle of a magical creature similar to the Lamprey and thinks she knows what's going on. So they go out to find Quentin. <laughs> and still continuing to make this situation a personal crisis, they see Stephanie has overpowered and is kissing him. Yeah, this scene acted as a conjunction scene to bring them all into the same room. And it was... Played off well. It was a joke. It was funny. And also a way to, for the magicians to, and they check themselves off and not take themselves too seriously. Well, and to lead into this explanation of what the Lamprey's up to, because Alice tells us it doesn't want to kill them. It wants to get inside of them and lay eggs in them, which will hatch, burrow inside your brain until you die, and then feed upon your carcass. Oh, that makes it a lot more scarier. That is worse than dying. <laughs> And might seem a little bit far-fetched, but in fact, we're going to talk about this more later. Last season, when we heard there was going to be a lamprey coming on scene, we looked up what this creature is in real life, knowing that they do exist and wanting to see how similar is it? Is it based in reality? So we talked a little about our guesses on that, and it was pretty close. For our character review this episode, we're going to talk about the lamprey. For sure. And we did break down last season what the real lamprey is in the real world, and similarities to other real animals who are very scary. But we have a lot of new listeners. And just in case you didn't catch up from the beginning, we'll reiterate it for you in this episode. I also found some new examples from an article put out by Nat Geo. Mm. Very frightening. It's a little gross. So if you're not into that, I'll, I'll give you the warning. But they are taking this from real life. They don't need a warning. They just saw a cat blow up. Oh, I think they're fine. Me. Trust me. You don't even know, mm. Jason. Well, now the group tries shocking Stephanie to rid the lamprey. When that doesn't work, they wonder if it's in Quentin. 
This is kind of what I meant about the back and forth. Quentin shocks himself, but that doesn't work either. But this brings us to the ultimate point where finally Alice realizes it's inside her father. And we didn't know. That was a surprise. Yeah, and it builds a very dramatic conclusion, too, where the Lamprey is able to speak through Daniel and address her, confronting Alice for murdering all of its children in her quest for knowledge and wondering what she learned. You killed my family. That wasn't me. I don't remember what I did as a Niffin. Alice, I know you're lying. Your father could always tell. That little twitch you get. You murdered every one of my children because you were seeking knowledge. So what did you learn by torturing each one of them to death? Hmm? I want to know. I wasn't seeking knowledge. When they died, they made pretty little lights. And when they died slowly, the lights got even prettier. And Alice shares probably the scariest confession. This is the real reason she did it. Even the whole quest for knowledge thing was bullshit. It might have been true, but it was the sheer satisfaction of killing something that she was after and just watching the result. If you look at Alice's face during this and towards the end when she does kill this lamprey, there's pain behind it, but also arousal or excitement, like she still kind of enjoys it. She's very much. Which is very scary. Enjoying it. And I think even what you're talking about, the part of her that remembers old Alice knows that it's wrong to enjoy that. She shouldn't let other people know. That's why she's saying it was about the knowledge. I couldn't help it. The Niffin thing overtook me. I had to find out everything I could. But I don't know that she exactly feels that sense of this is wrong or regret. She's so wrapped up when it happens in the rush that she gets. It almost takes her over. And I don't even think we realized how much of a problem this still was until this scene. And the Lamprey says he can sense things when he's inside someone. It's funny the things you can sense from the inside. That one still loves you. And your father has a weak heart. He'll die if you try to shock me. You don't know that. You really want to risk it. And I'm sorry I wasn't able to lay my eggs into her. (laughs) Since I know how much you hate her, it's crueler to leave her alive. Well, thank you for finally being honest. I'll let myself out. At that, Alice takes the risk to shock her father. The lamprey slithers out of his mouth, leaving Daniel alive. That lamprey was ugly. Mm-hmm. So I wonder, you only see it in that solid form after it's been shocked? Because when we first were introduced to the lamprey, visually, it was kind of like magical, I guess, like smoke, or it was something like anti-material that could go right into that construction worker. We didn't see this little uh, snaky type thing. I think this is actually what it looks like. It probably uses its magic to disguise itself Mm -hmm. so it can move about easily. But this is the creature that's sort of described from real life. It's pretty ugly. Yeah. Well, this ends with Alice shocking and killing the lamprey, still excited at the sight of the lights it produces. But they've seemingly overcome the crisis. You know, thinking about this lamprey and thinking about the magical creatures and how Niff and Alice ended up falling in love with not knowledge, which we thought it was doing, but falling in love with bringing pain to creatures. If you remember last season when her and Q were at a park in a sandbox and it looked like it was a kid in the sandbox, but then it like 
came out and it was huge mm. and it was just like the top of the kid. Alice was the one to kill it for Q. And then she flew away. Yeah. That was her first taste of that kind of, uh, I guess you would say, taste of blood, right? So maybe that's what started off that whole hunger. It could have been. And I, I definitely think part of the search for knowledge thing is true. I think that as this kind of creature, they just want as much as they can, perhaps. Power, knowledge, control, and certainly taking lives has got to go along with that. So yeah, it's really scary for a minute, and then they do a good job of kind of distracting us and bringing us back to that feeling that everything is just back to normal and okay. Alice takes Q into the kitchen and feeds him a drink that makes him vomit, which is supposed to kill any eggs left inside of him. Quentin questions Alice here about the past, and this is where we spoke about she gives him that talk that she can't ever be that person again. She's lived a whole other life, and part of that is still who she is. But before they can get further outside, Stephanie suddenly screams over Daniel's body. Alice and Q return to find him dead. Quentin tries to perform CPR as Stephanie looks on Alice in blame, but Daniel is gone. So a few things. In this scene, we're starting to see that I don't think we'll ever see Q and Alice together happily ever after. It doesn't seem that way. And I think there's going to be a lot of pain going forward as far as that relationship is concerned. For him, at least. Yeah. But also, I was a little confused and you were too. I can't tell if that was the same room. I think I'm in denial saying it was a different room where they saw the father dead because he was on the ground. He was saying to Alice, he whispered, like, kill it. Mm -hmm. So he was still alive. And then, and Q was still knocked out. She kills it, wakes Q up, makes a drink. They have a whole conversation. And then the mom wakes up and screams. And it looks like for the first time, they're both seeing her father dead. So I'm wondering, maybe he was up and he was like washing his face, trying to feel better, and then he collapsed again? Or was he just dead the whole time and they forgot to even look at him? Well, I don't think he was dead the whole time, or at least they didn't think so. Because, yeah, we saw him take that breath. But it is weird. We don't find out what happened in between. It's almost as though Alice and Quentin are awake and they just leave mom and dad in there passed out and go into the kitchen to start having this conversation without really checking to make sure are they up and going is everything okay because they have to call her in and that's when they find out so they don't give us that information but it was an odd transition to just leave them like that knowing that it was a risk she took in shocking them but again is this another part of like how much does Alice care about these things now? How much is that a priority in her mind? Certainly, this is going to be a loss to her because she had a a good relationship with her father. And what is this going to look like moving forward? She could barely deal with her mother as is. And now to not have that kind of in between, I don't know that they're going to have any kind of relationship moving forward, really. Okay, so there was a lot to say about Alice. Let's move on to our next grouping of scenes, which was with Julia, Katie, and Penny. We start out with Julia at the cottage, looking for Katie. She finds her caring for Penny, who looks terrible. And Katie says she has a ritual to help him, but it requires a lot of magic to summon a demon. Julia can either help or leave. This is like you said, she's questioning Katie, where she got the ritual and how well she can trust this person. But Katie is so desperate at this point, she'll try anything. And Julia agrees to help her. So she's sent to collect a femur, pencil shavings, and other supplies for the summoning that apparently she finds. No problem. Yeah. So let's remind ourselves where we're at and how we got here. The crew was together last episode, and they were fighting hard to get this battery so that they could get to Fillory. A cat has an aneurysm, blows up. Mm -hmm. 
Katie runs away, and so does Alice. The crew realizes that the magician that changed Mayakovsky into a bear was actually his wife. So they go there, the wife is punched in the face, and the battery's gone. Katie steals it. Katie stole it. So they're all pissed off. That's where we left off. Now, Alice is there. She's alone because Q, as a Lamprey, lied to her saying he's going to see his father because he's worse. Mm -hmm. She knocks on the door. It opens up. There she is with the battery and Penny is sick. So is it the fact that Julia saw Penny that sick where she forgot the fact that she wanted to get that battery back? And she's willing to... Yeah, I don't think it's that she forgot. I think she realized the situation. Katie kind of put that to her. This is what's happening here. I am using this battery for him. You see how necessary it is. So you can either help me or get out of my way. You're not getting the battery from me. There's also probably a factor that they do know there's more. There's at least four. They've lost one. This is number two. There's definitively two more batteries floating around out there, but they had always suspected it could be more than that. And I'm, I'm happy it went this way because we're constantly saying, why does the group not care about Penny? And I, I understand yeah. the bigger issue is getting back to Fillory, but we need to help him. He's sure. in dire circumstances. So I think she made that decision to stay and, and to help her. And also probably part of Julia feels she still owes this to Katie. We have this little blip of a scene that's very interesting. While out collecting the objects, Julia encounters a random homeless woman on the street who grabs her arm, her eyes go white, and she gives a sort of prophecy. You're missing the signs, Julia. What? I thought you'd be further along. We're going to have to push you. Okay, so this is one of the additional questions we now have after this episode. Who is that, and what do they mean? So we know that Julia still had magic, and we're wondering why. So that's not answered yet. But it's a breadcrumb to why? Yeah, I guess she was supposed to be following those clues of her own magic, which is sort of where she started. But then they got distracted with the batteries, and now there's all these side missions, and she's not continuing to try to figure that out. And they would like her to. I don't know. It's it's a we. It's a group of people. Yeah. Well, this is where Mello's idea comes into play. He was thinking maybe it's Ember and Umber, and this is part of the game. And they're like, you're supposed to be further along in this game. Yeah, but they never really cared about Julia. I heard another podcast brought up something also very interesting. I don't know how... There's other podcasts? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know how likely this is either, but saying if you think back to who was actually kind of interested in Julia, it was Jane Chatwin. And when she was trying to reverse and go through all these iterations, she took Julia out of the magical loop that one time. That's right, yeah. And so they think she could still be hanging around somewhere trying to help her. So same idea... Supposed to be dead, not really dead, but they're saying Chatwin instead of the two gods. Correct. My idea is which that I, it's... Which I think I'm on board with you. Go ahead. My idea is that it's Persephone. Me too. Because she's the only one who ever really liked or cared about Julia, wanted to help her, is an old god, potentially has the power to do so, but can't do it outright because that's the way it always works with these old gods. They got to give signs and prophecies. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to see that come back around soon. I think you're right, because all signs point to that. If you remember back to last season, Persephone kind of built a real liking towards her. And I think it would make sense because she is an old god, but she's not the highest of old gods. So if up above turned it off, she can't just turn it back on and she can't just go in to the real world and real world. 
not to them, our real world <laughs> and help them. Instead, she can just drop clues like they do all, in all the fantasy stories, right? So that makes complete sense. Anytime you're talking about Greek and Roman mythology, which there are parts of this that parallel that, the gods always need their heroes to do the things that they can't do here on Earth. And that's our demigods in a lot of stories. So I think that's what Julia is to Persephone. Yeah, and often they fight each other. The gods fight each other through their heroes. Plus, you have that complicated relationship that Reynard was her son, and we don't know if she ended up killing him, if he's still around. There's probably a lot at play there as well. And don't forget that they made a breakout from the underworld of Julia's shade, which people probably noticed. There's reasons why she would have to stay at a remove, but I'm excited to see where that goes. Me too. I mean, there's so many possibilities going on right now <laughs> and so much. I'm afraid they're setting up too many things and chances are at least one storyline will be ended quicker than what we wanted it to. Yeah, that's true. But I think they have a lot of seasons yet to come and they know it. And so they're playing out all of those pieces to the utmost right now. And that's the way we want it, right? Well, that would be a great question for Sarah Gamble. And we still haven't had our Clatchers bother her on Twitter. <laughs> So guys, get on that right at her. Tell her about us. Ask her to come on to our podcast. I'm sure she would have amazing insights, what she can share anyway. Well, back at the cottage, Penny wakes up and sees what Katie is up to. He realizes she took one of Mayakovsky's batteries and wonders if it's worth it to save him. He also shares that when they lost magic, the psychic connection or voices in his mind stopped. This is another one of those comments that I don't think is put in there at random. I think that's going to be important later. That that connection was often what allowed him to know what was going on, help save people, help connect to people. If Penny is just an astral projection right now, he yeah. can't communicate in any other way except for psychically. Well, yeah. Do you want to get into that now? Sure. Okay. So we're left off with him, astral projected. Let's come up with a better word. It's too hard to say. Uh, OOB, out of body. Okay, let's do that. That could be a shirt. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so he's OOB right now, and all we saw was him say, shit. Which I would say, too, <laughs> if you saw your body oh, there. What are you going to do now? What we don't know for sure yet, but I'm assuming, is that no one can see him or hear him. So it's kind of like Dante's Inferno in a way, because he won't be able to help. He won't be able to get help. He can scream at the top of his lungs, and no one's going to hear him. And also he's going to see them suffer with his death and he can't say anything. And keep messing up, it seems like. It's, yeah, and keep messing but up, of course. I think that there's going to be a way eventually for him to get the psychic connection back because that was one of his abilities. I know, I know. They're going to go to Ghost, right? And he's going to move a pencil <laughs> with his finger. <laughs> no, uh, yes, but this also opens up an opportunity for Arjun Gupta to be really funny. And to let that Penny personality go out mm -hmm. with the way he plays off of this, I think it's going to be some laughable moments as well. This worries me, though. Are we ever going to get him back on screen with Mayakovsky? Because I've been waiting for that. And I don't want this to be the end of that interaction. Mayakovsky might be the one that brings him back. Mm. Who knows? I mean, it goes full circle, right? He helped Mayakovsky make those batteries. Yes. So it would only... And you brought up, there's still the loose end of the Harriet plot where she was getting that book to help Penny. Now, I don't know if that matters anymore because was the book to help remove the magical cancer, which we saw them do here? Was it to free him from his bonds to the library? What was that going to do? Yeah, I was wondering, 
was that book that spell? Or did that book have that spell that they used that to they try found. to heal him? Maybe that's where she got the uh, demon conjurer spell. Yeah, this was pretty gruesome. We didn't talk about it, but when the guy came, he had to reach his hands right inside Penny's stomach to find that tumor, whatever it was that he took out that he wanted to eat. It was gruesome, but funny at the same time. Just the way he spoke about it, like nonchalant, kind of like a chill dude. Well, he's like, listen, this is a deal for me too. I want to eat this thing you want it out of you. Let's get this done. Yeah, and Penny, when he's in pain and then he OOBs out (laughs) and he's like, I don't blame you, dude. Or so I forgot exactly I would do what it says. Do the same thing, yeah. <laughs> I'd do the same thing, bro. Or something. It was. It was just the juxtaposition between a demon with these big claws and scary looking, and the way he's talking is so cool. And the fact that he actually seemed to feel bad, you know, when he closes up the wound, but Penny still slips away, and he says, "I'm sorry," you know, you called too late. But that's where we leave it for now. As we said, I'm sure we're going to get more into that next time. Yeah, I'm very curious what this means. Because we have this main quest that after the end of season one, I was so excited. I was like, the crew's going to get together again. But as we go further and further along, the humans on Earth keep getting diverted into other quests. And it's only happening more and more. I think this is going to be Elliot on his own. Well, Elliot and Margot. Yeah, the, it's a three-way split now. And that might continue for some time with the Fillory plotline, the Earth, the rest of the crew, and then Penny off on his own with whatever... <laughs> problems he's encountering, I don't see how that's going to reunite at least anytime soon until they resolve those things. We went through that all last season, thought we finally had them together, and this is where it winds up again. But I had mentioned that's very similar to the books. I'm wondering, eventually, with everyone who's on Earth and their own issues going on and their own fights, if it's going to end up with them fighting each other. The group, you mean? Yeah. We've had kind of glimmers of that over the seasons, right? Them getting angry and frustrated, but eventually they always wind up working it out, I guess, because the problems they're dealing with are so much bigger, which is nice. I kind of don't mind nixing some of that in-group drama or having it be brief and then they kind of come back together to work on it. Yeah, but this show's really good at dealing with that. They don't do the same drama over and over again. I hate shows where like... You're like, you guys are fighting over that again. Mm. Come <laughs> on. Enough of this shit. This show is really good at that. I mean, Katie was so pissed last episode at Julia. And you saw when Katie opened the door when Julia knocked on it, the look on her face said it all. It was perfectly done. But there was something so much more pressing that she was able to push that aside for now. Right, exactly. They don't have to get so caught up they weren't like fighting over the dead or the dying body like this is your fault and i (laughs) you know what i mean i don't want them to so glad they didn't do that for sure as hard as it might be to work together on these challenges we do see with most of our pairings they have somebody there they have the support of their friends somebody to work with to overcome that but as we transition over into our fillery scenes throughout the rest of this episode you get more and more kind of margot being isolated on her own And we're going to get some power Margot scenes here where she really steps up to the plate and just continues to do what needs to be done in ruling. But first we see that Elliot tells Benedict, the map maker, he can't get the key they found to do anything. He needs to send a message to Quentin and wonders where they can stop. But Benedict says the islands sometimes move because they don't like to be mapped. I love that. That's so, that's the fun in the magicians. The islands 
don't like to be mapped, so sometimes they move. <laughs> but also at the same time, I was like, why don't you have a bunny on board, dude? <laughs> right? Come on, think ahead. They had a hundred of them at White Spire. <laughs> well, they don't, so they're headed for the nearest island outside the Florian borders. But before they can get there, Admiral Lacker tells Elliot there are pirates on the horizon, flying the red bones, which means no quarter given. And when the pirates hijack the ship, the Admiral orders Elliot, Fenn, and Frey to lock themselves in a cabin for their safety. Looking at the closed door, Elliot discovers a keyhole that wasn't there before. He places the first key inside, and the door reveals itself. Another very interesting series of questions, because we are not going to see Elliot and crew for the rest of this episode. So a lot of things happen here. One, we have a new daughter. I say new because it's essentially a baby when it comes to knowing her parents. Mm-hmm. Obviously, she's a teenager now. So she's still assessing who her parents are. And she broaches that question, you're not going to fight to Elliot? Like, are you scared? And the mom, just like a mom does, stands up for him. Like, he's a powerful wizard, but without magic, you know. Then we're brought back to last episode's main thing. Know when to fight, know when to run. Make the right decision, right? And essentially, he does here. Yeah, and we don't know, was he hiding? Is that what that door enabled him to do? Was he running to somewhere else? Or did he open it and it led to another adventure that they had to follow? That's a good question. So let's break this down. One, I love the fact that a door appeared. I love this magic (laughs) shit. I'm so easy. I've been waiting for that for a long time, by the way. So the keys come into play right away. No, we're not on the next adventure for the next key. That'd be too easy anyways. But still, the key is coming into play. He starts off the episode in his first scene saying that I keep trying to do things with this key. It's not doing anything. Well, it doesn't until you need it. So at first I was thinking, oh man, where did he go? But then I was remembering that this key is an illusion key. That's the magic, right? So is he just hidden now on the boat where no one can see him or hear him? An illusion, right? That would make sense for that key. And the fact that we're left this season with the fairy leaving. I'm jumping ahead. I always do this. The fairy leaving Margot in this ship saying, it'll take you a week to get back home. If once the fairy leaves... Elliot shows up, you know, goes back through the door and he's like, oh my God, I just watched everything. Now they're reunited and they can go off on their next adventure. That would make sense. Or did that key lead him to where he needs to go, which is an island where there's a bunny? Or did it go to To the next next island or whatever, wherever the key is? So I wonder, it's... So many good questions going on. It can go in a lot of different directions. I hear you on the illusion magic thing, but you could also just very simply say the illusion magic was on the key in that you can't see the door until you need to. Okay. And so the key itself revealed an illusion magic door. But now the whole point of it is to continue along leading you to the next step of the quest. So I would imagine it's taking him to whatever that is which would also make sense with our storyline. As our characters continue to diverge, Elliot's going to have to keep following this journey and Margot's going to have to keep figuring out how to rule. Yeah, that makes sense. And that would be fun where after, with every key that he gets and uh, and unlocks, well, we kept saying, what are these keys unlock? Mm -hmm. It's the door to the next key until the final key. And you said that that last episode and I had to keep my mouth shut. Okay. (laughs) No, that makes sense. I like that, except for I wanted more of the ship. That would mean there'd be less about this ship and its 
temperament and personality? Well, no, I don't think that necessarily means the end of the ship. I think we're definitely going to see more. They talked that up in the behind the scenes of the magicians. I think... But if he doesn't need a ship, he just goes from door to door and the ship goes back to Fillory. Well, he might, not, he might still need it in between. If it's taken him to another island, now he's got to get back on the ship. Maybe the ship knows that. Maybe, Maybe. he's going to drive itself. That'd be cool. If not, if that's the end of the ship, I call bullshit. I highly, I highly doubt <laughs> it. I think there's more Munchak to come. They really went so far into that here that I can't imagine it being for nothing. Bullshit! <laughs> because, let's talk about that. Back at White Spire, Margot tells Tick she asked for mushrooms to be planted. Perhaps my favorite exchange Tick mansplains she's asking them to pull up food from the fields for inedible mushrooms. But Margot says the fairies ordered it. It's then that reports come from the seagulls that the Munchak was captured by pirates two days sail from After Island. We see that Margot's a little bit at her wit's end. She's kind of panicky in mm. the beginning of this. She's very like, I know, I understand, but I, we can't do it. We just got to do it. We got to <laughs> plant those goddamn... Which, one, you know, it's a little uh, scary because... We know her as the strong Margot, but we do see as this episode progresses that we do get that strong Margot. I mean, right when trouble comes. Follow me, Dickles. And she immediately knows what to do. So like you said, even though she's freaking out here and could have easily lost it when she finds out about Elliot, Tick's suggestion to take the Morgan Downs, the next fastest ship without magic, she immediately dismisses. She's got another plan, even if it's dangerous. She pulls herself together, and when summoned by the Fairy Queen to explain the mushroom delay, she presents this very logical argument to save their High King, lest others will think that they can get over easily on Fillory, and that persuades her. The Queen surprisingly agrees and takes Margot along with Tick and Gillen via Pegasus. Man, I wish we could have seen that. Yeah, I understand we don't have time, but <clears throat> just so cool, the idea of it. And Arjun Gupta teased people on Twitter, saying that we'll see Elliot riding a Pegasus. He <laughs> fucked with everybody. <laughs> We're going to have to yell at him. And once there, the queen leaves Margot to go negotiate with the pirates. Another test for her. The pirate Hoop, who can see the fairy queen, by the way. They say pirates have often had to make deals with fairies. Takes her below to meet the pirate king. Now, I want to pause here because I was wondering it. And once he made this statement, it just put it in my head. Did the fairy queen arrange this? For the pirates to attack them. Huh. I wonder. As a test? Mm-hmm. You might be right. Because it kind of makes sense the way it unfolds. We're getting little bits of information about the fairies as every episode goes by. So we're learning now that you only see the fairies when you make a deal with them. And now you forever see them. Or when you're part of the person's... Who made the deal. Like, and they allow you to. Tick and Gillen. So that's you know a little bit unfolded. But I never thought of it the way you just said it. That would make complete sense, which opens up more doors, which we'll get to in a minute. Yeah, they made a deal, which was to invade them. I'm sure they didn't know how that was going to end. But anyhow, while Margot goes to meet the king, Tick stays to try to pickpocket the eye from the queen for her, which he's later able to do. And probably because the queen allows it, mm-hmm. we know that she was aware of this the whole time. And below decks, Margot finds the Pirate King is actually a woman who tries hitting on Margot. While charming and flirtatious, Margot focuses on business and gets the king to allow her to visit Elliot, who is actually Benedict, pretending to be the king. That was very cute. So this is yet another instance of a woman in power. They are making sure to continue putting that out there. Yeah. 
And maybe not a mistake that that's who the fairy queen chose, if she did, to do this business dealing with. There's something about that that the queen is interested in. It's very important. Women in power. Actually, the show makes a precedence of showing that women can be in power. We got Julia, who's very powerful. We got Alice, who's super powerful. Yeah, if you take that slow, the two most powerful magicians of our group, Julia and Alice, in their own ways. We have the Pirate King, who's a woman. Margot, who's currently ruling Fillory and seemingly being groomed by the Fairy Queen for something. Frey, their child, that they took, potentially, because she's a female. We have Katie, who packs a powerful punch. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. The only major god that we've seen so far, Persephone, very powerful. Jane Chatwin was the one running behind the scenes with all of this resetting the time clocks. Her brother was the asshole who messes everything up. Mm -hmm. They're definitely telling us something on a macro level. And on a micro level, I am suspect that the fairy queen is grooming... Sexist. (laughs) Yes, and grooming Margot to take over Fillory. That's what it seems. But let's touch back on that after we see Margot speak to the Munchak. Mm, Okay. Yes, because first you do have Margot negotiating with the king. It was a brief scene, but a funny, nice exchange. The king, who I don't think we ever actually get a name for her, wants 3,000 Florian gold crescents and a deal for their ship. We talked about this before. Their ship is the Sika, who has biological urges, apparently a male, and wants the Munchak to submit. But because the Munchak is subject to royal command, Margot has to give approval. And once Tick explains the reality of it, the boat may be upset by the experience, not the same after. Distracted, irritable, even unable to sail, Margot realizes this is PTSD, and they're actually talking about allowing the Sika to rape the yeah. Munchak. Ugh. So suddenly I don't feel so bad for the pirates anymore that I was thinking, oh man, this fairy queen really took advantage of them on this deal. Well, they're not such great people. They're pirates, I guess, after all. And they know exactly what they're asking for just so that they can get their ship back on course. This whole pirates thing was another, I don't know how they do this. I think I'm pretty hip to pop culture, but they find ways to throw it in there when when she talks about how she loves pirates. And brings up Jack Sparrow. It was just so funny. And they were well done, right? They could have been corny as pirates, but they weren't. She was very commanding and interesting, even though we only got her for a couple of minutes. And very sexual. They make the strong women in control of their sexuality. Yeah, able to use it, which is exactly what Margot does here as a tool. And I think that goes part and parcel with... She feels for this ship and doesn't want it to have to do something that's out of its control. It's not fair. No, not at all. So she does something very empathetic. She realizes that if the pirates don't get what they want, they're going to kill the crew. But she still wants to try to explain the situation to the Heartwood and ask the boat what it wants. So she goes down there and she has this little talk. It was a very compelling talk. It was probably the exact same talk I'd have with it explaining what's going on, saying, if we don't do this, the crew's going to die, but I'm not willing to make you do this. Mm -hmm. So tell me what you want. When it doesn't answer, she doesn't just go, all right, fine, just you have to do it, you Mm -hmm. know? She walks away to take a minute to figure out what to do. But the whole time, the fairy queen was there, and Margot didn't know. So the fairies can still go invisible when when it wants to. to. So the, the fairy doesn't even need the eyeball. 
She was trying to tell her that later. You you think I don't have other magic besides this? I have ways of doing, seeing whatever I want. You can't stop me. And that's also what lets us know it's a test. Mm -hmm. She was waiting to see what she did and watching her the whole time. Yeah, the look on her face when Margot was finished. I was like, oh, she looks impressed and actually like really enjoyed what Margot just did. And that's when my mind said, we're starting to get an idea of what these fairies want. And I thought to myself, was it because of how she interacted with a magical creature? Ruling Fillory means ruling some people, but a lot of other magical things, sentient trees, other types of magical creatures like fairies themselves. Yeah. So is she able to see them as the same and equal and be a kind, just, fair ruler, but still strong and able to step up and do what needs to be done? Perhaps the former human rulers were not always like that. Well, yeah. So I didn't think of it as far as making it where Margo would be the supreme ruler. I thought of it a step before that as trying to cultivate good human rulers. So Elliot as well. And that might be his test, which is to go get these keys and to get the magic back. And that's why the daughter's there as the fairy queen's, you know, um, second in command or, you know, like the fairy queen's not with him, but she's got one of her people with him. But she didn't seem to care as much about that. True. About him yeah, and I didn't his think mission. About that. I thought just the whole encompassing thing was that we know the last bunch of human rulers failed mm-hmm. and treated the magical creatures badly, mm-hmm. which is what we're seeing yes. played out with Alice. Yeah. I definitely think that's a part of it. It must be. Well, and so the last scene here is Margot returning above deck to find all the pirates murdered. And the fairy queen standing over their bloody bodies. The queen says she was moved by Margot's speech, so she intervened and got what they needed. We see her taking their teeth. Mm. She's always about these weird things that yeah. must be Collecting adding up. stuff. They got to be going towards something. Why she needs these special mushrooms and teeth and the eight trillion I wonder. earthworms. I thought, yeah, I thought maybe the teeth was just a little joke. Tooth fairy. That's why I thought it was just kind of like a little wink-wink. I think she needs them. Yeah, wow. They made that allusion to when Julia and Katie were doing this spell, all the weird things they needed. And I don't think that's a mistake. It's tipping us off. If that was for something like that, what kind of magic could this woman perform with everything she's been collecting? I'm wondering if I'm just hung up now on what Mello said. Is she going to bring Ember Number back to life? Does she need all that to bring them back? Because the world is breaking down, remember that one scene in episode one, without the creators. Or am I just hung up on this and I need to shut the fuck up? I, I think you're <laughs> getting caught up. There's definitely something to that. She's trying to repair something on a massive level, but what is it? The big thing was we don't even know which world is breaking. Is it Fillory? Is it the Netherlands? Is it both? Does one control the other? Is it Q's heart? <laughs> but she's certainly gearing up for something and we're getting more and more looks into what that's going to be. Anyhow, the queen says Margot stood up to them like a queen, and that's how she needs her to be. But she still demands punishment for the theft of Margot's eye. When neither Gillen nor Tick will confess, the queen picks Gillen seemingly at random and whispers something in his ear. When he leaves, she tells Margot there's a song he does not like, so she put it in his ear and it will never leave. He will slowly go mad until he's no use to her. (laughs) Talk about the mother of all earworms. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. But if you look deep into all of these things, they're punishments that can be reversed. Yes. 
So is it not as mean as we're interpreting it? I wonder. You know how when you were young and your parents would ground you or take something away from you and you're like, this is the worst thing. They are so mean. But it wasn't that mean. They could always give it back. You know, it wasn't that detrimental to life. She could whisper something and take it away right away. You know? Maybe. Maybe. I think so. We don't know that. Well, when Margot squishes her eye, that's when the fairy said, that can't be reversed. Meaning, mm. I'm interpreting it as, Other when I taught you can. your lesson, I was going to give you your eye back. You just ruined that. Right. Yeah. It, it, that's like... Uh, Going back to the kid analogy, you saying that you're going to take my Game Boy away, and then I just, no, and I throw it and break it. And you're like, well, now you're never now getting you're it back, screwed. <laughs> dummy. So maybe that's the same thing? I agree. I definitely think she was just trying to teach her a lesson. She knew that Margot had to at least be aware that Tick was doing this. And I'm pretty sure she knew it was Tick, too. She oh, no, just... Tick said that he was going to, remember? He no, said, I mean, I, I think the queen was aware oh, that oh, it was okay. Tick. She knew it. the whole time, everything. She was just waiting to see how it played out, waiting to see what Margot would do about it. And yeah, she could probably reverse this thing with Gillen, although letting it go on and letting someone go mad, maybe not so minor, but I think Margot too had to make her point that there is a limit. And if she does want her to be a leader, there are times where Margot has to put her foot down. And that's what she was trying to do. I'll sacrifice my own personal mm. thing here by getting thing, rid of my eye. Yeah. <laughs> Freedom, independence, whatever you want to call it, in order to make that stand against you. But it's fruitless, ultimately. Yeah, and it's not that big of a sacrifice because she realized how much style she'll have with all her eye patches. So she's like, I don't even need my eye, bitch. I got so bling much bling, now. son. <laughs> but also, we know when magic is back, she can use magic to make that one eye Way better than having two eyes. Yeah, it's still. Yeah, it's I mean still it's a, a big loss. deal. I'm joking, but yeah, for sure it's a loss. And the squeezing of the eyeball, oh, it made me feel weird. But another point that shows how much Margot is willing to do, she's just going to keep stepping up when she needs to, and it's not easy going toe to toe with this fairy queen. I'm finding it harder and harder to think of who in the crew is the leader. There is no leader. Maybe that's the point. Mm. They're each leaders of their own thing that's going on in their own way. Well, what did the great cock say? It's about your friends. Mm. Never forget your friends. You, you have, have friends to do it there. together. You have to do it together. There is no one leader. Yeah. And we learned that last mm-hmm. season when we kept saying if they would just communicate and get on the same page and work together, they would be stronger and they were. But this time, it's not so much them as outside forces keeping them apart. Okay, so we have gone through all of our remaining questions as we discuss the episode. That takes us right into our rating. Jason, on a scale of 1 to 10 keys, what do you give episode 3? It's right on board with last episode. I really enjoyed it. I'm going with 8.7 keys. These episodes are doing what we need them to do, especially in the beginning of a season. Get us excited for the next episode, revealing just enough to make us want to watch more. And to really wish that it was on Netflix so we could just binge this. Well, I agree. And I actually thought it was better than last episode. So I'm going to go up to an 8.5 keys. I was at an 8 for episode 2. And moving on to our most valuable magician. And unfortunately, we had an Elliot-less episode. So I could not Thank goodness. use Elliot you, as an MVM. You were banned. <laughs> and we asked our Clatchers on Twitter, at CKC Podcast. You didn't. You wrote 
fairy queen. Like, take the ferry boat. <laughs> and it looks like I spelled something wrong again. Listen, <laughs> it's late at night by the time the show's ended. We have been busting our ass taking notes, and we try to get this out as fast as possible so that people are still on Twitter. This is so after funny. the show. And maybe you should start taking over the typing. He wrote fairy queen, like take a ferry boat uh, instead of fairy. But well, maybe it was a joke because, you know, the ship, the we're munjack. On, we're on a boat. Ugh, I'm such an <laughs> asshole. <laughs> That's fine. So again, at CKC Podcast, if you haven't done this yet, please join. It's really fun. We gave you three options this time. Alice, Margot, and the fairy queen, apparently. <laughs> uh, there you go. It goes right there. It's all women. Yes. Coming in at third place is Alice. We put Alice up there because she is sort of in charge of this personal quest to right the wrongs that she did while she was a Niffin to deal with this lamprey now and also needing to confront her parents and a lot of the personal stuff she's going through, her relationship with Q. It was an episode for her to start to step up and not just run away from her past. And she received 15%. Then coming in at second place with 16%, the Fairy Queen. We thought the Fairy Queen would work well because it's the first time we're not seeing her as a complete bad guy. Mm -hmm. She helped out with getting rid of the pirates, even though with your train of thought, she might have presented the pirates to them mm -hmm. on purpose. And it's starting to look a little more like, and it might be just us wanting her to be a good guy. It's starting to look a little more like she's actually helping them to become a better ruler. Or at least there's a purpose behind what she's doing that's going yeah. to make sense. And it's not just for her own amusement. She's not just screwing with Margot. I'm wondering, is she, and I don't really believe this, but I want to throw that out there. All these ingredients that she needs, is she recreating the wellspring? Is that even possible? Well, if it's possible, you would think that the creatures who are still magical and the fairies would know how to do it. Yeah. That's interesting. And I wonder if she's alone. Are there other creatures in on this? I mean, where did Loria go? Are they just hiding back in their kingdom, Idri? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Back to our poll. At number one, probably to no surprise, the winner is Margot with 69%. And I don't think we need to list the reasons why. We've kind of gone over it. Margot was so badass this she's episode. She's a badass bitch. And that's where my MVM is going to go as well. Same here. She came to the rescue. She had many funny quips. I love her for that. And she showed a lot of empathy, and that's something that I value tremendously. That's one of my main characteristics, actually to a detriment. But when a powerful character on TV shows or movies shows empathy, I often side with them no matter what. Well, and it just makes me think of all those labels that we often discuss that were put on our characters. And starting out, Margot seemed to have very little empathy and to care very little about other people, though we quickly learned that wasn't true. We see further and further growth in her development. Speaking of, it also now totally makes sense what we were speculating at earlier this season about Alice being named the torture artist. Mm. That has definitely now been affirmed. And we know that Margot now is being named the destroyer. Yeah, self-proclaimed. Yeah. <laughs> I'd also like to give a little honorable mention to Tick, who had a great episode this time. Yeah, very funny moments. Let me mansplain for you. <laughs> It's not mansplaining. If I'm wrong, if I'm wrong please woman-splain <laughs> to me. I loved it. This was definitely a fun episode. And let's move on to Clatcher's comments. 
Before we go into the particular comments, we want to thank some of our Clatchers who have left reviews for our Magicians channel on iTunes. And just to remind you, if we reach 100, we'll do a drawing there for free CKC gear. And also, to let you know, the gear store is back up. The website is moved. Everything is functioning perfectly, and it's the fastest it's ever been. I am so happy. That's a large weight off my shoulders completed. So a big thank you to GM, Badoon, Zerion123, Disastrous, My Secret Beth, and Marine Biologist. Thank you so much for your kind words and your high rating. We appreciate it. We read every single one, and it means the world to us. Now, moving on to our Clatcher's comments, Anastasia wrote, and this is about last episode. Just a bit of trivia for you. I have finished watching The Magicians, and I noticed when Q is trying to talk to Professor Lipson off the roof, he says, you were raging against the dying of the light. That rang a bell for me. And sure enough, it's the same name of George R.R. R. Martin's first book, Dying of the Light. I googled it. It also is the name of what is undoubtedly a terrible Nicolas Cage movie, as well as a song by Liam Gallagher. And it's also the name of a documentary film about the death of celluloid film in the digital age. I've always thought it was a beautiful phrase, so hearing Q say it immediately rang a bell for me. Yeah, well, and of course, the original source material, that's why I love this, is the poet Dylan Thomas. And you're talking about early 1900s here. This is that famous poem, Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Though wise men at their end know dark is right, because their words had forked no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Good men the last wave by, crying how bright. Their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Wild men who caught and sang the sun in flight, and learned too late they grieved it on its way, do not go gentle into that good night. Grave men near death who see with blinding sight, Blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. So beautiful and powerful. I think that's why it's been used very often as a moving speech in films and other literature. So thank you very much, Anastasia, for bringing that to our attention. And via Twitter, John wrote to us saying, At CKC Podcast, perhaps Penny's cancer infected him whereby the cancer kills his human body, but that would allow him to become a magical creature. In line with how Alice was turned into a Niffin. Ah, and that's why the reference he made a couple episodes ago. And that's what he said, explains his episode one lines. Okay. I wonder. Maybe he knew that was coming. That's a good idea. I I really wonder that. Is this all written in his book? (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's great. Thank you, John. And then, excuse me, I should have read this when we were going over MVM. But Patrick wrote, Honorable mention to the possessed lady that told Julia she was missing the clues. Now I have to go back over her scenes in the first two apps in detail. <laughs> and he also wrote, P.S. Just found your podcast this year and I love it. Great work. Well, thank, thank you, Patrick. You. We appreciate that. Tell your friends. And Melly wrote, I voted Margot because she negotiated to the best of her knowledge to get the quest going. I'm disappointed they didn't get the second key, though. Oh, and will Penny's soul become some kind of Yoda magician guiding his friends? <laughs> I wonder. Well, he won't be able to guide him much in the beginning, because he's not going to be able to converse with them. Yeah, yeah. But maybe that would turn into something. I like that. And Kirk wrote in giving an option D for Bean, meaning Beanie. Meaning me? Yep. How did he know? 
Well, he asked previously a couple days ago after our Patreon exclusive bonus episode. Now that he knows that Christina's only five foot nothing, what's the proper way to refer to her? <laughs> Shrimp, dwarf, little person, or Lady Tyrion? And I had filled him in on the fact that everyone calls you Bean and my nieces call you Auntie Bean. Yeah, it started when I was little. They called me Bean Pole, short like a bean, skinny like a pole. <laughs> and that became Beanie and over time Bean. And it just sort of stuck. So yeah, I love it. You're MVM. I'm always MVM. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Kirk. Okay, so that's going to sum up episode three. We still have our character review and our look into next episode, but that all contains potential spoilers. If you are afraid of those, we will see you next time when we review episode four, Be the Penny. So our character review this time is the Lamprey. Two reasons. One, we don't have any new breakout characters who we haven't reviewed yet that were prominent in this episode. But two, as we said earlier, we talked about the Lamprey more in depth last season when we were wondering what it could be about. And we did some research into what they are in real life. And we're going to talk about that again here. The Lampreys are an ancient lineage of vertebrates. Any jawless fish that may be characterized by a toothed, funnel-sucking mouth. Adults superficially resemble eels in that they have scaleless, elongated bodies and can range from 5 to 40 inches in length. This is real life, people. Yeah. This is real. Lacking paired fins, adult lampreys have large eyes, one nostril on the top of the head, and seven gill pores on each side. So they would look similar to this. On top of that, there are about 38 known species. The parasitic species are probably the best known, and they feed by boring into the flesh of other fish to suck their blood. But only 18 species of them are parasitic. They feed on prey as adults by attaching their mouth parts onto the target animal's body, then using their teeth to cut through the tissue until they reach body and fluid. A study of stomach contents of some lampreys have shown remains of intestines, fins, vertebrates, anything basically they'll eat. Although attacks on humans do occur, they will generally not attack unless starved. So that's the only difference. They're much less likely to go after people. However, there are other creatures that do. And there's way more than this, but I'm just going to give you the three that I found most disturbing that I read about on that National Geographic article. In 2010, scientists described a particularly unnerving leech species in Peru with huge teeth. I think they might have took that idea from this. They named it T-Rex, Tyrannobdella rex. So far, it's only been reported going into people's nostrils. Ugh. Oh, but similar species have turned up in other human orifices. For example, botflies will first lay their eggs on mosquitoes. Then, once a person is bitten, the eggs and larvae make their way under the human skin. The maggots burrow down, leaving a hole behind them to breathe through while they feed on our blood and tissue. Ugh. There's a picture of one on that article sticking out the top of somebody's skull. That's disgusting. And they leave a hole all the way down so that they have air while they feed. Now, it says they'll usually leave on their own about after eight weeks. That kind of reminds me of... Eight weeks? Yeah. But that reminds me... Yeah, it's disgusting. It reminds me of the original Mummy movie. But instead of these bot flies, but that's what these scarabs do to them. Yeah. Remember, they kind of crawl under and you can see them bubbling up. Well, Oof. and I mean, people use, well, they used to use maggots for this purpose. 
back in the day. For like blood clots and stuff. Right, or to, to clean out dead flesh yeah. before they would sew you up. They would put them in there for that very purpose so they would burrow down and just eat the dead flesh. Yeah, but they wouldn't go under your flesh and then And then stay there for you. eight weeks. Yeah. And apparently when they talked to people, firsthand account, like a woman that had this in there could feel it inside of her. This is like my greatest fear, people. When I was a kid and I found out that earwigs were real and they went into your ears, I was paranoid for weeks. They were going to crawl into my ear. Apparently, they talk about this later, how common it is for this fear and how it's a, the percentage of this happening is so, so small unless you're in areas like deep jungle where there's a lot of different insects and we don't have protection against that. But stories will still pop up. There's one more, actually two types of screwworm fly, the old and new world, that have shown up in Florida. These worms seek out open wounds, lay their eggs in it before it seals over, then the maggots gestate inside, either animals or human. And once the eggs hatch, they start to thrive inside of you, seeking out a secluded area to grow and sometimes feeding on the flesh. Ugh. So it seems like the magician's lamprey took their ideas from all of these things. Mixed them together. What it looks like from the real thing, um, the burrowing from the leech species, feeding on you through the bot flies and laying eggs that gestate. Although I couldn't actually find any that particularly go after the brain. So that might have been their own invention. But there you have it, people. Sometimes real life is even scarier than TV. Yes, that's true. Well, that was a gross one. We'll try to bring you a more fun character review (laughs) next time, but also kind of interesting. And finally, we have a brief preview for the next episode. As Elliot is hunted, Quentin and Julia discover a powerful secret tied to the history of break bills. And that we did not get from what we saw on TV. So that's interesting. The TV preview showed us Alice saying sometimes she wants magic back more than anything. But sometimes she looks around and sees what a mess they made with it. And Penny looks on, seemingly still OOB, and watches, saying he's screwed. Yeah. And there was a quick view of a scene with, I think it's Penny's body wrapped up to be buried. And that's With scary. Katie standing over it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that leads me to believe his body's dead. And is this the way we're going to see Penny from now on? Which could be awesome if they can learn how to see him and talk to him. And get around it, yeah. bring back the psychic connection or whatever. But again, it's going to be funny as hell with them not being able to see him at first. Okay, we also, when we first started the season out, went over the episode titles as they had them so far, which was only through episode six. They have just recently released the information, so I'm not 100% sure this won't change, but we found the remaining episode titles for seven through 13. There's also descriptions of what happens, but I'm not going to get into that. If you want to look at it, you can go check out the Magician's Wiki. Episode seven is titled Poached Eggs. Episode 8, six short stories about magic. Ooh. Nine is All That Josh. So excited <laughs> for that one. Ten is The Art of the Deal. Eleven is 23. Twelve is The Florian Candidate. And 13, Will You Play With Me? Hmm. And such a playful, if you remember the episode 13's Have You Brought Me Little Cakes. Right, yeah. Uh, it follows that theme. And if you look under the descriptions... What I found interesting, without giving too much away, they have weird pairings of people grouped up together throughout the remaining episodes, going off and trying to work on things, people that I wouldn't expect to be together, and glimpses of things I hadn't imagined. So if you're interested, go check that out. This was another great episode. I got to be honest with you, this is one of my favorite episodes to podcast about. Really? Yeah. It's more niche 
so we probably have a little less listeners. But I feel less of a weight when we do the podcast as far as uh, a weight on my shoulders because... If we mess up on Game of Thrones, if we say something by mistake the wrong way, even though we've said it a million times the right way, we'll hear about it. You, you know? can't be too negative. Otherwise, you're a downer. If you're yeah. up on everything, then you're a hero. Then you're a fanboy. And then Mr. Robot's so deep. We got to do so much research. This one, we can just enjoy the magic and, and come up with our own theories. And we just have a fun time with it. Talk I love about, it. Talk about a show we really like. I agree. It's been a great ride so far into season three. They're doing a wonderful job with it. And speaking of fun, we just released our bonus episode on our Patreon podcast. And we will be releasing our movie review, which this month will be Jumanji, which should be fun. That'll be out later this week. And thank you so much to our new Patreon members. We will be doing a drawing for free CKC gear the beginning of next month. So keep an eye out for that. And for the magicians, till next week. This rounds on me. I will try not to die. This round is on me. Please hang up and try again.